I'm Ruth from the Contextual Safeguarding Team at the International Centre and I'm here with Des Holmes, um, who's the Director of Research and Practice, who's going to speak to me a bit today um, about um, kind of developing a new response to risks in adolescence. Um, she's just spoken at our event today, um, developing holistic approaches to safeguarding adolescents. Uh, Thanks Hi. for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for those that weren't at the event today, and also for those that maybe want a bit of a refresh, uh, can you tell us a bit about the kind of context behind why we need a new response? Our child protection system, which um, I should say actually does a pretty good job most of the time, although we, you know, we have lots to learn still, our child protection system was designed primarily, many would argue, uh, to address the safeguarding needs of younger children mm -hmm. facing risk within a familial context. It was never designed to deal with peer-perpetrated sexual exploitation, mm -hmm. uh, to deal with cyberbullying, to deal with radicalisation, to deal with school-based sexual assault. It was never designed um, for the complex contemporary adolescent uh, kind of risk that we mm -hmm. see now. So that to me is a really fundamental kind of driver yeah. for change. I also think that the way in which we see um, the adult safeguarding agenda evolving in recent years, which I think has been broadly very, very positive, this, this shift towards making safeguarding personal, mm -hmm. this approach which is driven by choice and control and, and notions of risk enablement, and the person being, I guess, equipped to make the best decisions they mm -hmm. can make and supported and safeguarded where they can't. Now, that's a very positive move. For too long we were ignoring risks and harms facing adults with care and support needs but you do then start to see a real divergence so mm -hmm. somewhere between rescuing young children and protecting them at all costs and enabling adults to contend with the risk and harms that they might face in their environments for me somewhere in the middle there's got to be a system designed for adolescents and i would argue um not just for adolescents but with adolescents that's me if we think about our procedural response to that kind of sexual abuse as a parent of a 14, 15, 16 year old child who might be worried sick about their safety and at my wits end have done everything I can to try and keep them safe, short of or possibly including locking them in their room, which mm. gets a different safeguarding response of course. Yeah. Um, when I'm then invited to formal meetings and part of the paperwork is about my capacity to change or my ability and willing to safeguard my child, I can pretty quickly feel excluded from that process. So the work of PACE, Parents Against Child Sexual Exploitation, is really, really relevant here. There was also a report put out just a couple of weeks ago, I think, published by the Centre of Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse, written by um, Sarah Scott and Diane McNeish, I believe, which mm -hmm. is really helpful about how parents experience uh, safeguarding and child protection procedures. We can really quickly see how alienating they are, how non-inclusive they yeah. are, um, and how punitive they can be. Mm -hmm. The argument for change for me is both moral, what we're yeah. doing doesn't work well enough, uh, it's financial, what we're doing currently costs more than we have, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also kind of about values. No one came into this job to tick boxes or to cover their uh, reputations, mm. to safeguard their own reputations. Um, people came into this job because they love kids and they believe in change and they, they want to be part of a, a positive change process. We need to design a system that allows them to do that. Yeah. We need to design a system which has young people front and centre where they belong and respects practice wisdom and makes it easier for professionals to work in the best interest of young people.
And in terms of doing that and redesigning that um, system or thinking through what that might look like, um, you talked about re-understanding um, how we think about vulnerable adolescents and how we think about their kind of stage in development. Yeah. Could you reflect on that a bit about how that sits, fits in? Um, it was really striking to us when we started this work, which is sort of going back three or four years now, it was really striking to us, um, I guess, the, the difference in how we treat development. So if you work with, in, in the early years, um, you're not allowed to work in early years without some understanding of child development and attachment. And certainly you can't run settings, for example, that are very good understanding of child development uh, and attachment. We'll let you go out and work with teenagers any day of the week with little or no understanding of adolescent development. And in fact, when you talk to practitioners about what adolescent development involves or the implications of adolescent developmental needs and, and those, those dynamic factors, um, there's often some real gaps in knowledge. Now, some colleagues are very good at this, but of course, uh, we need all colleagues to understand this. So, if we think about adolescent development, not just around the physical transitions and the, the really significant changes that occur as a result of kind of uh, hormonal um, changes and, and our, our bodies developing, but also our relational development. Mm -hmm. So, we see um, whilst parents continue to matter and families continue to matter and primary caregivers continue to matter, much more than teenagers want to admit sometimes, mm. peers start to matter more and more and more. So, the yeah. salience of peer groups um, becomes a really important factor. Um, there's uh, a body of research talks about identity formation. Now, we're not suggesting that everyone has their identity absolutely nailed down by the age of 18 and a half, but you do a lot of the heavy lifting mm -hmm. during adolescence. So a, a huge part of the um, developmental phase around developing identities occurs uh, at this life stage. There's also, um, many researchers argue, a period of brain plasticity, just like we have in the early years. Mm -hmm. well, our brains become uh, highly plastic, which is sort of mushy and mouldable uh, to non-neuroscientists like you and I. Um, and that's a really important message actually in terms of our hope in practice. Mm -hmm. Too often we have heard, and we've seen it written in serious case reviews, and we see it in case file audits sometimes, um, this sense of giving up on teenagers, that they got wired up wrong, that the damage was done in the early years, that you know, sadly at this point uh, the harm has led to irreparable mm -hmm. damage. And actually nothing could be further from the truth. The, the evidence around adolescent brain development really, really shows us that there's period of brain plasticity and a huge period of formation and reformation. So I guess in, in layperson's terms, there is absolutely everything to play for, yeah. again, in adolescence. And I suppose there's also something around, um, as part of adolescent development, that that invincibility, I've heard it sometimes described mm -hmm. as, um, the uh, quote-unquote failure to cooperate, <laughs> the um, belief that some young people, not all, some young people have, that nothing can harm them and that adults don't understand them and that they'll be fine if we just leave them alone. And rather than seeing that, mm. that attitudinal stuff as a barrier to effective safeguarding, we should be leveraging it. Mm. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real, um, I think it's a real force for good because if we can harness that sense of I know best, leave me alone, me and my friends have got this, well, great great, if you're feeling that confident in the world, how do I leverage that in a way mm. that helps you to enact that power and that agency, yeah. rather than being surprised um, when life doesn't play out that way? Resourceful. So I guess basically it's what you're saying is it's about really understanding young people's experiences and the kind of uh, getting to kind of an in-depth understanding of that to understand why they're behaving in certain ways and then flipping that on its head to kind of have a strengths-based approach. And building our knowledge of adolescent development, not, mm. not assuming it's common sense. Yeah. I mean, a, I think part of this is about humility, professional humility. We, we would never 
try and um, provide medical treatment to someone when we didn't understand, didn't, we weren't properly qualified mm -hmm. to do so. Um, very few of us would try and work in the early years without understanding yeah. uh, early years child development. But lots of us work with teenagers and have very little understanding of adolescent mm -hmm. development. I mean, I can't uh, emphasise enough the, the excellent work that John Coleman does. There's also an organisation called the Association of Young People's Health, who do fabulous work around young people's health, mm -hmm. fairly obviously. Um, and there are a number of you know, free resources. We've got some on the RIP website, which are free to access. There are resources out there, but it does require us to stop and think and, and stop perpetuating this myth that working with teenagers is just common sense and mm -hmm. kindness and the ability to wear a hoodie. Yeah, you know, it's it sounds like more complicated and complex than mm -hmm. that. And I guess the crux of it is around that kind of choice making, decision making, how we understand risk taking behaviours, um, which is then what we're kind of responding to. Yeah, and in fact, I would I would be more challenging and say risk taking um, to me bears the same problematic inference as language mm -hmm. like lifestyle choices. Yeah, you know, when we talk about young people's risk taking behaviours we are still locating responsibility with them for the harms they face. Um, and this, this is, I think, where the, the real kind of tightrope walking comes in, mm -hmm. because what, what, what I would want to encourage and what, what we talk about in our work at Research and Practice is both and. We both need to ensure young people are active partners in their own safeguarding journey and need to make clear that young people are not responsible for the harm they experience. Yep. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, which is why I think participative mm. approaches are so important, participative practice is so important, why a resilience focus is so important, and why, again, back to adolescent development, given what a time of change and uh, development this is for young people, why would we not work in a way which furthers their development? Mm -hmm. Why would we not work in a way which nurtures that self-efficacy, that yeah. sense of identity formation, that sense of aspiration? Mm. Working That's in a good. child protection procedure which minimises adolescent agency when it suits us, mm -hmm. so it's not up to you whether you go into care, it's not up to you whether we send you out of air, it's not up to you whether we put you in a secure setting, it's not up to you who your social worker is, and yet conversely and simultaneously hold young people responsible for the choices they make. Mm -hmm. So you're criminally responsible at the age of 10. We've written down risky lifestyle choices in your case file forevermore. It's your fault that you keep going back to your abusive boyfriend. We can't have it both ways, it's completely yeah. immoral. So I'm interested in um, participatory methods and you've kind of talked about that um, slightly just then and also in the presentation that you've just given about how um, that can kind of help as a re developing a response um, and how, how do you see its role and, and its importance because obviously we do and lots of work around that at the International Centre as well. You do and I quote <laughs> your stuff all yes. the time. I'm a huge fan of the work of Camille Warrington uh, on this and she's written some beautiful resources for us mm -hmm. particularly around uh, young person centred approaches and participative practice in the mm -hmm. context of CSE. Well, we should remind ourselves that there is already recognition uh, afforded to participation within the current statutory guidance mm -hmm. and legislation. We might argue that in some cases that's been reduced down to tokenistic measures, like filling in something in the wishes and feelings box, mm -hmm. or telling a young person they're allowed to spend five minutes with their independent reviewing officer before we all go in and decide you know, where you're going to live for the next ten years. Or worse still, we are still making decisions for young people, about young people, without young people, but we've written the paperwork in Comic Sans font, as if that somehow makes us young person friendly. Uh, so it is already in law, and we are yeah. still not always doing this um, mm -hmm. well enough. I actually don't buy um, the idea that the only barrier is time. Mm -hmm. Time is a factor. 
very high caseloads don't help. High pressured environments, services that are you know fit to bursting, reduced funding, all of this stuff is indefensible, absolutely. But the idea that you have to have hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months to build a relationship, I think I would challenge. I mean, we've all been to a GP and, and met that, that GP who just makes us feel like we've been listened to. And what, your appointment? Seven minutes, I think, the average GP appointment. The ability to create rapport and engage with you as a human in a way that feels respectful can mm-hmm. be done in two or three minutes sometimes. Mm-hmm. The ability to form the relationship is about practitioner openness and resilience and support. And I would I suppose I'd really want to highlight the importance of supervision in this. If we want our workers to operate in a truly participative way, that involves receiving an awful lot from young people and giving of yourself. It's emotionally draining work, so the importance of reflective supervision I think is really, really key here. If we want resilient kids, we need resilient practitioners. Mm -hmm. They need to be held and they need to be contained and supported and able to reflect critically on their practice. I do also think that we could use the voluntary sector much better than we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and some parts of the country have a fabulous arrangement already where they're really drawing on the strengths and skills of community-based organisations who are often able to operate in a much more participative way. However, I have some misgivings about the idea that statutory services have to do the sharp end and voluntary ser- sector organisations do the participative stuff. It is all of our business yeah. to be working in a participative way. And, and that includes colleagues working in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. You might have seen the Bernardo's report, Journey to Justice, about how young people experience criminal justice system and processes and it's completely unparticipative it's arguably Mm -hmm. even re-traumatizing so everybody not just youth workers social workers foster carers CSE workers but also judges everybody needs to be thinking about participation and I was really interested in what you were saying about um, how actually if we don't do that um, it can kind of be really reinforcing of the behaviours that they've experienced and that we're trying to challenge. Absolutely, that really leaps mm. out at you from the literature, I think. So looking at people like Camille Warrington's work, but also I mean, the, the work of other colleagues in the International Centre, uh, you, you see these quotes from young people who we have, air quotes again, rescued from harm, mm-hmm. but what they describe is a loss of power and control or, or the continuation of having no power and control. So yeah. we are actually mirroring the very same dynamics that we, we're there to address. So young people saying things like, you know, I've been told what to do, loads. I've already had people bossing me around and taking away any sense of independence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't need you lot doing it as well. There's a quote, um, I think it's from Camille's work again, I could be wrong, uh, where a young person says something like, I had to do whatever they wanted me to. When they wanted me, I had to go. And when they didn't want me, I never heard from them. They dropped me completely. And then it becomes clear that young person is talking about the police, not the group of men who yeah. abused her, but the, but the police. In our efforts to pursue prosecution, we're actually being almost exploitative, mm-hmm. inadvertently, in our behaviours. There's, uh, there's another quote, which I'm going to dreadfully misquote, and Camille will hate this, but it's <laughs> something along the lines of, um, you know, when it was happening, when the abuse was happening, it's again a, a young person's experience CSE, I, was, I wasn't allowed to make my own decisions, I was being told what to do all the time, but I was also having a lot of fun. And now social services have got me, and I, uh, I'm still not allowed to make my own decisions, and they still keep telling me what to do, but I'm also having no fun. It's something along those lines. Now, that's a really hard message to hear. If you want to think you've rescued a child, you don't want to be told, you've taken something good away from me. I was having fun before you lot turned up. Mm-hmm. I've got no more choice and independence now than I did when those fellas were hurting me, but you lot don't buy me nice clothes. So we don't want to hear those messages, but we need to hear those messages. Mm-hmm. I would also add, and this is a challenging point, uh, not only do we mirror the abusive dynamics of of, uh, denying young people choice and agency and control in their lives. We can also um, mirror the grooming process. So I 
I've asked practitioners for good practitioners, you know, bright, committed, talented practitioners, and when you say to them, can you describe to me the process by which you build a rapport and a relationship with a young person? And they will say, quite reasonably, things like, well, I get to know them, and I try and remember what TV programs they like, and I might buy them a little bit, you know, like something for their hair or something, or a new pencil case for school, and I might take them out for a bit of, you know, a cup of tea if I can, or, you know, even lunch if got a bit of spare money and I'll um, you know, give, them, give them a lift and just try and get to know them and sometimes I'll even try and like, you know, watch a little bit of that TV programme I know they like so then I've got something to talk to them remember their sister's name but we're describing the grooming process mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting for a second any of those things are bad practice yeah. but I do think we need to think much more critically about which dynamics we want to emulate and which dynamics we want to disrupt mm-hmm. and I guess that's probably the, the fundamental bit if we're going to redesign this system for teenagers and I desperately want us to and I I think the work that the International Centre does is just essential to this. If we're going to truly redesign a system so it is fit for purpose for adolescents, built with their development in mind, co-designed with them in order to build their self-efficacy and put them where they belong, front and Mm centre, then we're going to need a workforce who are courageous, capable of critical thinking, analytical in their mindset, evidence-based and really, really well supported. Yeah, it's really insightful. Um, and I suppose the kind of, to kind of wrap it up, it would um, be really great to hear what you think that practitioners can kind of go away, take away messages that they should be either really listening to, what they should go away and read or what they can kind of change in practice. I I think there is absolutely opportunity for practitioners to uh, engage more with the evidence. You know, we, like you, will make as much of our stuff freely available as we can Mm -hmm. so that people can engage with that. Um, Events like this are a really key part of that. But I would also invite practitioners to talk in their teams, in their services, about what what they could be doing differently. Mm So a few years ago, we drafted these kind of seven key principles, you know, one of which was be designed around adolescent development, and one was about prioritising relationships between young people and their peers and families. The third was about um, supporting relationships between the practitioner and the young person, being accessible and advertised, having a resilient workforce that are well-equipped, those kind of things. It might be a really useful exercise for teams and organisations to sit down and reflect Mm. internally on how well their practice, their service design, their structure um, mirrors those principles and, crucially, to sit down with the young people they serve and say, well, you tell me, we've given ourselves a 5 out of 10 Mm. on thinking holistically about your well-being. Tell us how rubbish we've been. Or... (laughs) Tell us we've been better than that. So I think this kind of principle of co-design and co-production is really, really essential here. Yeah. And certainly when you when you talk to young people who are care experienced, who are real experts in, in their experience, I guess, and experts by experience, they couldn't be clearer. There's room for improvement, yeah. which doesn't mean we've done everything wrong so far. It means that we're on a journey. And we're not miles away. That's yeah. the thing. We're not a million miles away mm-hmm. from something which could be really well-evidenced and well-designed and participative yeah. And much more fluid. I mean, that, that's something that really strikes me. It's something which actually um, provides a fluid, tapered, um, and gradual approach into supporting young people into adulthood. Yeah. We're not a million miles away. We're not starting from scratch here, but we need to maintain our energy and our passion for it. And we need to make sure the workforce are well supported. Mm, definitely. Uh, I, I don't think we can defend continually telling people they just have to do more with less. Yeah. Um, I think we should stop colluding with that toxic, dangerous narrative. So finally, is there anything else that you'd like to reflect on or add um, about today's event? Or I think events like the one today uh, are really important. Even more important is the network, the yes. safeguarding network, which I think is, is really uh, essential. We are starting a piece of work to look at safe transitions, mm-hmm. um, and I will be really keen to work with the contextual safeguarding network because for me they're, they're just 
different facets of the same agenda yes. here, which is about redesigning something which actually speaks to adolescent mm-hmm. and young adults' needs, uh, strengths and risks and harms. And I think that working with the sector, respecting the expertise and knowledge of the sector uh, and uh, and harvesting what's already working well is key to that. I suppose the, the kind of final point, um, I always feel a bit nervous when I'm asked to do like keynote speeches or, or be interviewed because it's a bit antithetical for me. Just as young people cannot be passive recipients of our safeguarding intervention, they have to be active agents. Similarly, the sector must not be passive recipients of mm. expert knowledge. Um, Certainly at RIP, we learn as much from our members as, as I think we offer our members. And I think that's a really important point for those of us working in research, is that it's not just about getting research into practice, yeah. it's about how we get practice back into research and how we get both research and practice uh, into policy. And at the heart of that's got to be the voice of lived experience. So yeah. seeing all, for, you know, it's relativism, isn't it? Seeing all forms of expertise as, as useful and relevant and important and worthy of respect. And I think that's how you can achieve sustainable change rather than some... Dr. So-and-so says we have to change our practice yeah. like this. I think there's something much more meaningful to be done through this kind of networked approach mm. that, that's being demonstrated today. Definitely. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Des, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us. That's been really helpful. Not at all.